We'd like to invite, welcome you to the Discover Prophecy Seminar. We're so glad that you're here this evening, and we have an exciting program for you tonight. Uh, our speaker, of course, is David Ashrick, and I'm absolutely certain that you will be powerfully, powerfully blessed by his message. Before we jump right into the preaching of God's Word by our friend, Pastor David Ashrick, I would like to invite Camille Aragonis to the front. She is going to be singing a special number for us. Welcome to the front, Camille. i 
Wasn't that absolutely lovely? All right, good evening, everyone. Are you a friendly group? You'd have to be sitting that close together. I know Nathan has already said this. I just want to repeat, we are thrilled that Dr. DeRose was with us this evening. Did you find that to be a blessing? Yes or no? Me too. And I want to thank you personally, Dr. DeRose, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us this last week. And I want to emphasize as well that that is a one-night thing. We don't get him every night, just tonight. And so tomorrow night at 7 o'clock sharp. At 7 o'clock what, everyone? Sharp. We're going to start this program. We invite all of you to be here. It's going to be excellent. In fact, our topic tomorrow evening is Discover How Ancient Babylon Foretold the End of the World. Discover How Ancient Babylon Foretold the End of the World. You notice as you came in tonight, you all received a study guide that says Discover Prophecy at the top of it. You all have that? Everyone's going to need to have one of those. Um, it's not required by law, of course, but it is going to significantly increase your apprehension and your understanding of this message and of these seminars. I have been known to speak a little quickly. A little one, everyone? Quickly, and it's not that I speak quickly, it's that people listen slowly. Someone told me one time that they were paying attention to exactly how quick I was speaking, and they said that I spoke four times faster than the average speaker. And they were asking me to slow down, and I said, well, listen, listen, listen. Even if you only get half of what I say, you get double what a normal speaker would give you. And several people asked me to slow down, and it, I just wasn't able to do it. I have two speeds. My wife who's sitting here in the front row will tell you that. I have the speed that's off, that's when I'm sleeping, and I have the speed that's go, and that's the rest of the time. And so there will be no slowing down, and so instead of slowing down, which seemed to be a veritable impossibility, I thought it might be smarter just to give you something that would enable you to keep up with me. That's a good idea, isn't it? And so what you're going to discover night by night is that the... Uh, presentations are basically going to follow this outline. Now, sometimes I'll zig a little bit this way and I'll zag a little bit this way. Sometimes I'll digress. But for the most part, what you have in front of you there is the presentation. But you will notice that there are blanks. There are what, everyone? Blanks. And those blanks are not there because I don't know the answer. Those blanks are there so that you can write in while we go so that you'll remember the answers. Does that make sense, everyone? 
Is that a good idea? Now, let me tell you why we do that. It's not just to give you something to do. It's actually so that you can remember and grasp what's taking place in the meetings. Think of it this way. Night by night, I'll be speaking. And so you're getting it uh, auditorily. You're getting it into your ears. You'll also be seeing it here on the uh, study guide. And so you'll be seeing it here. We'll have slides that will also be further illuminating the presentation and you'll be writing it down. And so the, the idea here is that you're hearing it, you're seeing it twice and you're writing it. And all of those things will work together and coalesce together to make it more understandable and more followable for you. Are we all together on that? Okay, very, very good. And so at the end of the night, by the grace of God, if I've done my job and if you've done your job, every one of those blanks should be filled in. Okay? Now, I just want to say right at the outset, in the interest of absolute transparency, there are basically four reasons that we are conducting this Bible prophecy seminar. You might be wondering, why do they do this? And uh, why do they take the time and great expense and great energy and man hours to put this on? There are four reasons. Reason number one is this. We believe that the time of the end is near. I want to be perfectly transparent about that. I believe that the world is coming apart at the seams. We're going to be presenting uh, abundant evidence to that effect. But really, do you need someone to demonstrate that to you? I mean, with the showing of hands tonight, how many people believe, you know, things seem to be unusual. Just raise your hands. You know, there does seem to be something going on. I believe that as well. So that's the first reason we want to give you absolutely compelling and unequivocal evidence that we are, in fact, living in the time of the end. The second reason that we're here is that we want to show you from a biblical perspective. From a what did I say, everyone? a biblical perspective, how this world is going to end. There are many people in the world today that have no hope, no confidence, no security. They think that the United States government will give them security and surely there is a modicum of security, but they're looking for real, lasting, transcendent security. The Bible alone and God alone can give us that kind of security. Can somebody say amen? Now, you're going to find throughout the uh, course of this presentation and throughout the course of the seminar, I'll invite you to say amen. Now, that's sort of religious speak. And so for some of you who maybe you're not super religious people, you've come in maybe as a seeker. I want to let you know that the word amen simply means I agree with that or I consent to that. So when I say amen and you agree with that, you say, yeah, amen. Are we all together on that? Amen. amen. Good. And so we want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about how this world is actually going to end. The third reason we're conducting this seminar is that we want you to know how to be ready to meet the strange and unusual times that are rapidly coming upon us. We live in a very different world since September 11th. Isn't that true? Yes or no? The post-September 11 world is a very different world than the pre-September 11 world. And what we're going to see from a biblical picture is that this is only the beginning of many things. The marvelous, glorious prophecies, particularly of the book of Revelation, are coming to pass right before our eyes. And what we're going to see as we look at the Bible, it's going to give us confidence. Give us what, everyone? Confidence in the coming crises. And you'll be able to say, I want to be ready. And the fourth reason we do this is not just so that you can be ready, but so that you can stay ready. Are we all together? That's why we're doing it. So if, if one of those reasons is why you're here, then you're in the right place. You got an extended schedule tonight when you came in. You might have thought, well, this will be a nice way to spend the evening. And all that'll be a nice thing to go out for the evening. And you came in tonight, you got that extended schedule, and it shows that the months are going to last for, or pardon me, the meetings are going to last for almost a month. Beloved, we're going to be here basically every night for a month. We'll take more or less Sundays and Wednesdays off. And we are looking forward to a power-packed 
time together. And not because of David Asterix, but because of what God says in this book called the Bible. Amen? Now, that introduces a question. And what we're going to do right at the outset is ask the question, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? You've come to a Bible prophecy seminar. And right at the outset, we, we need to understand that if we're going to trust the Bible, there has to be reasons. There has to be what, everyone? Reasons. And so many people are asking today, and by the way, for those of you who are in that room, we apologize that we do not have a screen. I've been informed by my uh, production crew here that we're going to have a screen in that room tomorrow, so you'll be able to look here and there. So don't, don't not come back tomorrow because you couldn't see the screen, because tomorrow there'll be a screen right in that room. If you take a look at the screen here, this was an article that was run by U.S. News and World Report several years ago now. And the, the, the title of the article, the cover story was, Is the Bible True? And of course, that's the very question we're asking tonight. I don't know if you can read the subtitle there, but it says, New Discoveries Offer Surprising Support for Key Moments in Scripture. Many people today are wondering, is there something that can be trusted? Is there something in which I can place my confidence? Is there something that can give me real, genuine, lasting security? And the answer is yes, there is abundant evidence. In fact, our thesis here in the Discover Prophecy Seminar is that there is plenty of evidence to trust this Bible, to trust this book as what it claims to be, and that is God's Word. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I want to spend just a few opening moments, a few preliminary observations as to the voluminous evidence that supports this book as a unique and special book. It is internally consistent. You'll notice the various consistencies that we put up here on the screen. This is not part of your notes, incidentally. It is internally consistent. It is translationally consistent. That is to say that the Bible has been accurately translated down through the ages, before the time of fax machines and hard drives and computers and email and all of the modern technical amenities that we are used to today. The Bible has been accurately, almost perfectly accurately translated down through the centuries. Can you say amen to that? Remarkable. The scientific consensus, we'll spend some time on that, scientific consistency, cultural consistency. How is it that a book can apply so powerfully, so amazingly and so consistently to so many different cultures? I mean, just here this evening, I know that we have uh, people who are from Russia. We have people here tonight who are from Jamaica. We have people here tonight from a variety of cultures. And yet the Bible is a unique book able to speak to Jamaicans, able to speak to people from the United States, able to speak to people from Russia and Australia. All over the world, different cultures find this book to be absolutely encouraging. That is unique in human history. Can you say amen? amen? Not many books like that. Archaeological consistency. There has never been a single archaeological discovery that has controverted even one point of history in the Bible. Also, historical consistency goes along with that experiential consistency. I'll be perfectly transparent with you. I have found the Bible to be the voice of God to my soul. I want to say that again. I have found the Bible to be the voice of God to my soul. I believe this book is a living book. Is it what did I say, everyone? A living book. In fact, the Bible even says that in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The Word of God is quick and powerful, living and powerful. I have had encounters with God through reading and studying this book. It's a supernatural book. Can you say amen? Now, surely there are many other good books out there, but this is a unique book, experientially consistent. I'm a different person than you. You're a different person than the individual sitting next to you. And yet we all come with our unique personalities, our unique idiosyncrasies. We come to this book and it speaks to each of us in a powerful and personally consistent way. Are you with me, everyone? And what we're interested in here, of course, is this final one, and that is prophetic consistency. 
what we're going to see is that Bible prophecy provides indisputable evidence that God's Word, the Bible, is in fact what it claims to be, and that is a remarkable revelation from God Himself. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. If what the Bible says about itself is true, if this book really is from God, that would make it the most important book in the world, wouldn't it? I said that would make, the mo- that would make it the most important book in the world, wouldn't it? What we're going to see here is that there is excellent evidentiary and even objective evidence comparing the great prophecies of the Bible with the outlay of history. And we're going to be able to stand back and say objectively, this book is supernatural and this book can be trusted. I hope you came in here tonight. I I hope you didn't come in tonight as a skeptic, but I hope if you did come in tonight and you are skeptical, that you will stay with us and see that these are not just religious claims. Listen, I was not a religious person nine years ago. I converted to the Christian faith because I saw that the prophecies of the Bible were so totally consistent with history. Are we all together, everyone? Yes or no? I'm not standing up to you, uh, standing up to you tonight and speaking to you tonight as a person who's been religious all his life and totally interested in religious things. No, 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 no. As Nathan said, I was a purple-haired punk rocker. I didn't become a Christian until I was the age of 23 years old. When I became a Christian, I said, there's something powerful, special about this book, and more importantly, about the Savior and the God that this book reveals. Are we all together? And so what we want to introduce tonight is, is the Bible true? And I want you to know that I believe there are excellent reasons to trust the Bible. When I say the Bible's true, I'm not just saying, well, it's true for me. In the same way you might say, well, that's not true for you. No, no. When we say the Bible's true, we're saying that it is true in an objective sense. In a what sense, everyone? What we mean by that is simply this. Even if nobody believed it, it would still be true. We don't buy into this, well, you know, it's true for you, but it's not true for me, and let's just all get along and be happy together. No, no, no. It is true in the most emphatic sense of the word true. What we're going to discover as we spend some time together is that the great prophecies of the Bible are not difficult to understand. I want to undergird that. The great prophecies of the Bible are not difficult to understand. I don't want to be overly simplistic here. There are some prophecies that are complicated. There are some prophecies that do require a degree of sophistication and real critical thinking. But for the most part, Bible prophecy is not difficult to understand. In fact, that's going to be one of the major premises of this entire series, is that Bible prophecy is very available and very accessible to the common person. To the what did I say, everyone? The common person, surely the scholar and and the intellectual and the erudite can spend time in the scriptures and find great and wonderful, marvelous depths there to plumb. But our premise here is going to be that even the common person, even the so-called non-theologically educated person can come to this word and actually understand the prophecies for himself and for herself. You might be dubious. You might say, oh, it's impossible. I've read the book of Revelation. I didn't understand anything. I've read the book of Ezekiel. I didn't get it. I read the book of Daniel. I didn't get it. You come to these prophecy meetings and I guarantee you. I, what did I say, everyone? And I'm not just whistling Dixie up here. I guarantee you, you will be able to understand Bible prophecy for yourself. That's one of the reasons that we're going to be giving you these study guides night by night is I don't want you just to take my word for it. I want to put the tools in your hand so that you could go from this seminar, you could go from this presentation, you could go from this event, go to your own house, your own kitchen table, your own room, your own desk, 
sit down with the Bible and a few tools that were put into your hand and you can start to see these great prophecies unfold before your own eyes with your study. Does that sound like a good idea, yes or no? That way you don't just leave here and say, oh, well, pastor so-and-so said thus and so. No, no, no. I want you to have tools in your own hands so you can do your own study, your own thinking. Your own what, everyone? And never forget this. If you're not thinking, someone is doing your thinking for you. We don't want to do your thinking for you here. We want to give you the tools that will enable you to responsibly. What word did I say, everyone? Responsibly and in a biblical way to understand these great prophecies. Prophecy is not just something that religious people are interested in. That is why magazines like Newsweek can run covers like this. Prophecy, notice the subtitle here, what the Bible says about the end of the world. And so we're not just talking about something here that is of religious, an interest to religious people. Perhaps no book in the course of, of human history and certainly in modern times has more fascinated different cultures and different peoples, religious and irreligious alike, than the book of Revelation. Why don't you take out your study guide and we're going to begin by reading that first paragraph there that's on your study guide. It's just a brief introduction to this marvelous book, the book of Revelation. Now, just by a showing of hands, how many people of here have read the entire book of Revelation through? Just re raise your hands nice and high. Excellent. Good. Notice what it says here on your study guide. The book of Revelation contained in the Holy Bible is a remarkable book indeed. Its fantastic imagery and poetic language have fascinated people for generations. Even today, nearly 2,000 years after it was written, it inspires and intrigues the mind. The root word of Revelation is what, everyone? To reveal. To reveal is to uncover, to disclose, or to make plain. This title is consistent with the Greek title of the book, which is Apocalypsis, which sounds to us like the word Apocalypse, which also means to unveil or to uncover. The very title of the book suggests that it can be understood. How very unusual then that many Christians today, both laity and clergy alike, suggest that it is a, quote, closed book, which cannot be understood or comprehended. Strange indeed. Is there anyone here tonight who's ever heard that before? The book of Revelation cannot be understood. Raise your hand. You've heard that before. Okay. Oh, oh, that's a that's a book that can't be understood. That's a closed book. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Why would God, it's a closed mind, that's exactly right. Why would God write 65 books in the Bible? There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Think about it logically. Why would God write 65 books which can be understood only to make the last book, a book which could not be understood, and then give the title of that book, The Uncovering or The Revealing? Does that make any sense to anyone in here? God is, and incidentally, the very reason that the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible is that you need everything else before it in order to understand it. In fact, that's what we're going to discover this evening. Notice the next paragraph. The book of Revelation is a prophetic book, meaning that its primary content is what, everyone? Prophecy, prophecy of course. Nevertheless, it must be noted at the outset that according to the first three verses of Revelation, the primary purpose of the book is to reveal... Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of Him. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation. I hope you have your Bibles tonight. You will be needing them every night. Some of the texts we will give you on the screen, but many of them we will want you to turn to right in your own Bibles. Now, you can find that. It's easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. Go to the far end of your Bible, the far cover, the right cover there, and you'll find the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to notice the very first verse, and we'll look at the third verse as well. 
Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, the revelation of who, everyone? Jesus Christ. Now, many people have this idea that the book of Revelation is all about beasts and dragons and cryptic imagery and smoking altars and all kinds of fantastic, almost mystical imagery. And all of that is in there. But right at the outset, we are told that the book of Revelation is about who? Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, what we're going to discover throughout all of Revelation is that there is a sense of urgency. A sense of what, everyone? Urgency that permeates this book through all of its 22 chapters. Here in the first verse, it says things that must shortly take place. It's, it's saying, don't be lazy, don't be lackadaisical, don't be lethargic. There's something that's happening, it's going to happen soon. It says, which must short, shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, my Bible uses the word signified. How many of your Bibles tonight say he signified it? Raise your hands. Okay. What's the root word of signified? Sign. That's exactly right. One of the reasons that some people find Revelation difficult to understand is that it is written in signs and symbols. Written in what, everyone? Signs and symbols. Well, don't let that be a surprise to you. It says right in the first verse of the first chapter of this book that when God gave it to John through his angel, that he gave it in symbolic language. He sent and signified it. Now, jump down to verse 3. Blessed is he. The word blessed means happy. Blessed is he who, what, everyone? Reads. And those who, what, everyone? Hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. There's that sense of urgency again. The time is near. Don't be lazy. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't put it off. The time is near. Notice the threefold blessing. Blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who read. And blessed are those who keep a book that no one can understand. Does that make any sense? God is saying, oh, you know, I gave you the 65 and I gave you that last book that you can't understand. But if you could understand it, you'd be happy. But nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Doesn't make any sense. The book of Revelation can be understood. And we're going to see tonight that it is not even that difficult if we have the proper tools. The proper what, everyone? Tools. The other day I was trying to hang a picture up at my house and I needed a hammer, but the hammer seemed like it was so far away. After all, it was all the way in the garage. And uh, so I was looking around for something and I found a shoe. <laughs> you ever done this before? And, you know, how come the garage seems so far away sometimes? Well, you know, I'll just use the shoe. See, you pick up the shoe and, of course, you know, it doesn't dawn on you at the time. The shoe has a rubber sole. And, uh, you know, you hold the nail up there and it just doesn't seem to be working. You're getting black scuff marks on the wall. And, and you're really making hanging up a picture look like a difficult thing. Why does it seem so difficult? You have the wrong tools. If you have the right tools, is that difficult? Not at all. What we're going to discover tonight, in fact, tonight we're going to put two tools in your hand that will transform the way you understand the book of Revelation. But before we get there, we must ask two important questions. Now, we're right on your study guide. Two important questions. Number one, what is prophecy? And number two, where can I find true and reliable prophecy? Well, the first one's actually quite simple. What is prophecy? The answer is this. It is a foretelling of events or a prediction. A foretelling of events or a prediction. 
That's what the word prophecy means. You can look it up in your dictionary. The word prophecy is to foretell, to predict something. Our second question was, where can I find true and reliable prophecy? And what are those two words right there, everyone? The Bible. That's exactly right. Now, you're not following along with me anymore because you're busy writing on your sheets and that's just fine. You're welcome to do that. Now, let me just give you a quick biblical picture. Two texts, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that sort of paint the picture of what prophecy is. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, Old Testament verse. Notice what God says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and notice this phrase here, and from ancient times, things not yet what? Notice what God's saying here in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. God says, I'm God, no one else is God, and I'll prove to you that I'm God. I know the future and I can declare the future. I know what's going to happen before it comes to pass. Notice a New Testament verse. These are the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 14 and verse 29. Jesus said, notice this, it just makes such good sense. And now I have told you, what's that word, everyone? Before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may what? Believe. That just makes good sense what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, listen, I'll tell you in advance what's going to happen so that when it does come to happen, just like I've said, you can believe in the credibility of what I'm saying. If that makes sense, I want you to say amen. If someone could accurately and consistently and, and unequivocally and inarguably tell the future, that person would by nature be supernatural and you'd be interested in what else they had to say. Jesus says, listen, I'll tell you in advance what is going to happen so that when it does happen, just as I've said, you can believe that everything else I say is true. So prophecy is a foretelling of events. Other religious books, surprisingly, or perhaps I should say not surprisingly, do not contain predictive prophecy. We can look at the writings of Confucius and we find there no prophecy. We can look to the writings of Buddha and about Buddhism and there we find no predictive prophecy. We can even look to the Quran and we find in the Quran no predictive prophecy. Yet a remarkable statistic about the Bible is that a full 30% of the Bible is prophecy. How much, everyone? 30%. I want you to think about that for just a moment. We're not poking fun here. We're not being pejorative here. We're just stating the facts. In order to declare the future, by definition, what would you first have to know? You'd have to know the future. Doesn't that make sense, everyone? Yes or no? Now think about that. In order to declare the future, you must first know the future. And so why might it be the case that other religious books do not contain predictive prophecy. Perhaps because the authors of those books don't know the future. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. There are two classifications of prophecy in the Bible. Classical prophecy, number one, and number two, apocalyptic prophecy. We've already talked about that word apocalyptic. Comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to unveil, to uncover, or to disclose. That's, that is the title of the book of Revelation, apocalypsis. Two kinds of prophecy in the Bible, and it's going to be helpful for us to understand that these two kinds of prophecy will significantly and dramatically inform how we understand the prophecies of the Bible. Are we all together so far so good? Yes or no? 
classical prophecy was directed primarily at the nation of ancient Israel. Uh, most of the commonly known biblical prophets fall into this category. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos. The vast majority of biblical prophets would fall into that categorization of classical prophecy. There are certainly apocalyptic themes in some of those books, but broadly, these are the classical prophets. There are only two books, however, in the entire Bible that are in their entirety apocalyptic. And those two books are the Old Testament book of Daniel and the New Testament book of what, everyone? Revelation. I want to show you something absolutely fascinating. Open your Bible with me to the book of Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24. And if you're sitting next to someone who looks like they're having a little difficulty finding it, then be a good friend, be a brother, be a sister, lean over and help them to find it. Matthew chapter 24. First book of the New Testament, right between Malachi and Mark. Matthew chapter 24. I'll give you plenty of time to get there. It's important for me that you see it. Matthew chapter 24. Now, in two nights, not tomorrow night, but the following night, we'll spend the entire night in Matthew chapter 24 looking at one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Bible. But look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. Verse 15. Jesus speaking. If you have the words in red in your Bible, then you'll notice that these words are in red. That means Jesus is speaking. Jesus says in verse 15, Therefore, when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by who, everyone? Daniel the prophet. You say, well, well, I'm already confused. What's the abomination of desolation? Don't worry. That's not what we're here for. We'll spend plenty of time in that abomination of desolation. What I want you to see is the second part of that verse. Verse 15. Therefore, when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him what? Understand. Isn't that interesting? Jesus here is speaking to the people of his day. And incidentally, it's, it's about the second coming. It's about the end of time. And right in the middle of it all, he says, by the way, you should understand the book of Daniel. In an end time context, Jesus says, understand the book of Daniel. Well, we already read in the book of Revelation, blessed is he that reads and keeps and hears. In fact, these are the only two books that I'm personally aware of in all of the New Testament where Jesus explicitly says, understand this book, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And we're going to discover in our Bible prophecy seminar that these two books are like sisters, brothers. It is basically impossible to understand one without the other. Daniel and Revelation go together. Go what, everyone? together. And not coincidentally, these are the very two books that Jesus said, you'd better understand it. You'd better understand the book of Daniel and you'd better understand the book of Revelation. Not coincidentally, those are the two books that are apocalyptic in nature. Two classifications of prophecy. So the burning question that we have this evening is this. How can we correctly interpret Bible prophecy? How can we correctly interpret end time prophecy? We don't just want to know what one man thinks. Can someone say amen to that? We want to have the tools to arrive at correct conclusions ourselves. Well, in order to correctly understand Bible prophecy, we're going to need two essential keys. Two essential keys. And if you're following along, we are on the second page under the correct interpretation. Correct interpretation on the second page. Let's read that introductory paragraph. Second page where it says correct interpretation. 
This brings us to the question of interpretation. How can we correctly interpret apocalyptic or end-time prophecy? That's our burning question that we had just here a moment ago. As we'll discover, the Bible holds the keys to unlock the message of its own prophetic books, especially Revelation. It is simply a matter of discovering the keys and then what, everyone? Using them. How many of you have heard of this book called the Bible Code Book? Oh yeah, the Bible code book. It's all a great big mystery. Let me tell you something. That is what the devil would love for you to believe. Oh, it's a great big mystery. Takes a real genius to understand it. No, no, no. You want to see the Bible code book? I've actually got it over here. Let me grab it. Here. Oh, there it is. There's the Bible code book right there. The Bible is its own interpreter. Let's say that together. The Bible is its own interpreter. You don't need a PhD, a THD, or any of that. And you surely don't need some esoteric do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do code book. God speaks in natural, normal language. Now, I'm not here to make fun or to put anybody down, but the point is this. Whenever you see something that says, oh, it's all so mysterious, it's all so mystical, you should immediately be concerned. I mean, is God not intelligent enough to communicate with us in normal, everyday language? Can you say amen to that? Surely he can do that, and he has done it. What we're going to discover tonight is that there are two very simple keys to understanding the book of Revelation. And here they are. Key number one. The book of Revelation rests upon the broad foundation of Old Testament history, imagery, and prophecy. That's what you'd write in on the line right there. Old Testament history, imagery, and prophecy. The second key is this. Jesus Christ is the focus of end-time prophecy, especially the book of Revelation. And we've already seen that in the first three verses of Revelation chapter 1. Those are the two keys that are absolutely essential as we begin tonight. Number one, we need a sure foundation. And number two, we need a sharp focus. The sure foundation of the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. The sharp focus of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. Are there beasts in Revelation? Sure there are. Are there dragons in Revelation? Sure there are. Is there mystical imagery in Revelation? Sure there is. But those are not the focus of Revelation. Those are all props on the stage. Jesus is the focus. If that makes sense, I want you to say amen. So tonight we're going to apply these two keys. And in applying these two keys, let's spend a moment here on the first key. That the Old Testament is the foundation and its imagery and its history and, and all of its illustrations help us to understand the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation contains 404 verses. More than 270 of them are taken directly from the Old Testament. Trying to understand the book of Revelation without knowing the Old Testament context is like trying to understand the English language without knowing the alphabet. It's an exercise in impossibility. If you're going to go buy the Detroit News or you're going to go buy the Free Press and pick those papers up and in one hand have the Detroit News and in one hand have the book of Revelation and think you're going to understand the book of Revelation based on these events, you, that is an exercise doomed to failure. There were all kinds of religious figures that were saying, oh, yeah, Russia is the great dragon of Revelation 12. And, oh, Russia, Russia, Russia. And every time they opened the book of Revelation, Russia was all over it. Until communism basically evaporated right before our very eyes. And, <laughs> got to go back and think that one through again. Because their interpretation wasn't based on the Old Testament foundation. It was based on a man-made foundation of current news events. And this is fanaticism. This is sensationalism. And it does not lead to a responsible... What word, everyone? 
a responsible understanding of the book itself. If we want to responsibly understand this book, hey, if you're looking for sensationalism, you came to the wrong place. If you're looking for responsible Bible interpretation, for responsible tools that you can apply yourself, you came to the right place. 404 verses in the book of Revelation, more than 270 are taken directly from the Old Testament. Let me give you five quick examples. You've got there in your study guide five quick examples of how this works. I'll just give you five examples of how it would be basically impossible to understand the book of Revelation without the Old Testament context. Key number one, the Old Testament is the foundation. Bible example number one, ancient Israel's economy centered around the sanctuary and its sacrifices. The lamb was the most prominent of the sacrificial animals. You find that all throughout Exodus, all throughout Leviticus particularly. The lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the sanctuary, and the sacrifices. When we come to the book of Revelation, we find that Jesus Christ is referred to as the lamb 26 times. John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 verse 29 there, he said, behold the what? Do you know it? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so, if we're going to understand what John the Revelator means in the book of Revelation when he uses the word 26 times, incidentally, the word Lamb only occurs 29 times in the whole of the New Testament. Think about that. 29 times in all of the New Testament and 26 of them are in the book of Revelation. What John is saying is, go back and figure out what that means, the lamb. Go back and take a look at it in its Old Testament context. It doesn't mean a literal lamb. It's pointing to something significant. To try and understand the book of Revelation without the Old Testament context is impossible. It's what, everyone? Impossible. The second one here, when, you, when, we, when we come to Daniel chapter 7, we're going to study this prophecy in just a few nights. It's Absolutely amazing. I love this painting. A good friend of mine, Eric Fletcher, painted this. I just love this. And we find there this, these incredible images. I mean, just out of this world images. A lion with eagle's wings and a bear that's raised up on one side with three ribs in his mouth. A four-headed leopard of all things with four wings. And then a, a, a beast that was so horrific, so terrible that Daniel couldn't even describe it. And he, he sees these unusual beasts coming up out of the water. He's saying, well, what does all that mean? Hang in here. We're going to study that. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on that, as a matter of fact. But here's something interesting. When we come to Revelation chapter 13, we find this beast called the Antichrist beast. Oh, oh, did he say it? The Antichrist. Sure, we said it. Nothing mysterious about it. In fact, if you look at your extended schedule there, we have a message entitled, The Actual, Definite, Certain, Unavoidable Identity of the Antichrist. We will show you from the Bible. From the what, everyone? From the Bible, who this actually is. The point is this. When you come to Revelation chapter 13 and you encounter this beast, I mean, this thing is a hideous looking beast. John says, listen carefully, he has the mouth of a lion. He has the body of a leopard. He has the feet of a bear and he has ten horns. Guess where that imagery comes from? Just guess. It comes from the Old Testament. And guess what book it comes from? You're exactly right. So to try and understand who this beast is, Without first understanding what those beasts represent in Daniel, it's going to be impossible. Now, you can pick up your Detroit News and say, well, I think that that is uh, North Korea. Now, that's North Korea right there. And that interpretation will last for about five or six years until North Korea passes off the scene. And we hope that that situation is alleviated uh, in, a, in a positive way. Notice this one here, Bible example number three. According to Daniel and Isaiah in the Old Testament, Ancient Babylon fell after a man named Cyrus 
diverted the river Euphrates into a field and he, this allowed the, the armies to come in and Babylon fell. Okay, that's history. That's how Babylon fell. And we'll spend some more time talking about that. But what's remarkable is when you come to the book of Revelation, you find in Revelation the great river Euphrates in Revelation 16 is depicted as drying up. And immediately after the drying up of the river Euphrates in Revelation 17, Babylon falls. Whoa! Where did John get that idea from? Where did John get that imagery from? It comes directly from the Old Testament. You want to understand that prophecy? We better go back and understand the prophecy that it is based upon. Is this making sense, everyone? Yes or no? You might be saying, well, wait a minute. I don't understand those Old Testament things either. Well, that's why you come to a Bible prophecy seminar. Amen? Exactly. Example number four. We'll give you just five of these. In the book of Exodus, that's the second book of the Bible, Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage by divine intervention in the form of ten plagues. Maybe you saw the movie with Charlton Heston, right? The Ten Commandments. God delivered His people in the form of ten plagues. Well, guess what we find in the book of Revelation? In the book of Revelation, God's last day people are delivered again by divine intervention in the form of the seven last plagues. Say, whoa, where did that imagery come from? Comes directly from the Old Testament. And the fifth example here. Actually, this is still part of example number four. Pardon me. According to Exodus 15, the pinnacle of Israel's deliverance came when God brought them through the Red Sea. Remember that story? God led them through the Red Sea. That was the pinnacle of Israel's Exodus experience. And according to Revelation 15, the pinnacle of deliverance for God's last day people comes when they stand on the sea of glass. The imagery is so similar, it's almost synonymous. And here's our fifth biblical example. According to the book of Genesis, the center of the Garden of Eden was the what, everyone? The tree of life. And according to Revelation, the center of the New Jerusalem is, guess what? The tree of life. In fact, we're going to be spending some pretty significant time on that very theme. Two essential keys. Absolutely essential. Number one, the book of Revelation, say it with me, rests upon the broad foundation of Old Testament history, imagery, and prophecy. Tonight we've given you just five examples. We could literally give you 50 examples if time allowed. What I want you to see here is that if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, it's at the end of the Bible for a reason. Many people come right to the book of Revelation and they try to read it and they don't understand it. That's a little bit like picking up a calculus textbook and trying to understand it when you don't understand simple arithmetic. If you go through the process of understanding Revelation, listen to these words, on its own terms. What did I say, everyone? On its own terms. It really is not very difficult. In fact, you've got a key in your hand tonight, the first one we've already talked about, that will already open up the book of Revelation before you in ways you never knew possible. It's not a scary book. It's not a mystical book. It is an awesome book. It's an amazing book. And it's an understandable book that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And number two, that brings us to our second key. Jesus Christ is the what, everyone? Focus of end time prophecy, especially the book of Revelation. These two keys are essential to unlocking prophecy's doors. We have a sure foundation in key number one, and we have a sharp focus in key number two. What I'd like to do now is take you through the book of Revelation very quickly. In fact, as we survey the book of Revelation, I want you to note with me carefully the preeminence of Jesus Christ. 
He is clearly the central figure of this amazing book. In fact, what we're going to do is take a whirlwind tour this evening of the book of Revelation. And I mean whirlwind. It's going to last about ten minutes. If you go walking through a forest, you can look at the trees, you can look at the bark, you can look at the flowers, you can spend time looking at all of the details and the nuances of the forest. It's a very different experience than if you fly over the forest. If you what, everyone? When you fly over the forest, you get an airplane view. You can see the lay of the land. And it's very helpful to understand the lay of the land before you go walking into the innermost details of it all. Does that make sense, everyone? And so, instead of just starting right into Revelation chapter 1 and saying, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and start wading our way through, we're going to start losing people. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to fly over the book of Revelation in kind of an airplane fashion, and we're going to look down and say, oh, so that's what the book is all about. Let's walk through it together. In Revelation chapter 1, a man by the name of John, he was the last living apostle. He was stranded on an island, a penal colony called Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S, 24 miles out into the Aegean Sea. He was Christ's last living apostle. He was there. He was separated from his family. He was separated from his friends. He was separated from everything that was familiar to him. And there he was all alone, dejected perhaps and forlorn, just wondering all of his friends gone, his family gone. He's been exiled to this island because of the Word of God, the Bible says. And he's sitting there and then Jesus appears to him on that island. There's an older man, perhaps 80 or 90 years old at the time. Most scholars believe that the book of Revelation was written sometime around 96 A.D. And here's John, an old man, and his weathered hand and his weathered face on that island. His friends all gone, his fellow disciples all gone, separated from all that was familiar and common to him. And boom! Jesus appears to him. And he says, John, I've appeared to you for a reason. I'm going to show you things that everybody is going to wonder about right down to the very end of time. People are going to read what I'm going to show you. And John just basically sat back and got to watch the most amazing movie ever to transpire, directed by Jesus Christ. All of these visions begin to flash before John in cinematic fashion and, and he guides him right through these remarkable visions, the visions that we are going to be spending time on night by night by night, looking as John looked at these amazing images, looking as John looked at these mysterious and unusual signs and symbols. There's John looking up into heaven. What's the first thing he sees in Revelation chapter 1? He sees the risen Christ. The first thing he sees, the risen Christ. And the Bible says he was, he was walking among seven golden candlesticks and he had seven stars in his hands. His feet burned like fire and were bronze. He had white hair. And he speaks to John and he says, John, don't be afraid. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm Him who was and who is and who is to come. I'm Him who was dead and who is risen. And John looked up and he saw the glorified priest face of his best friend in the world, Jesus, the man who he'd spent three and a half years of his life with. And he looks up and he sees Jesus in glory. That's Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find Jesus saying, John, I, I've got my churches, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. I've got my churches, Laodicea. I need you to send letters of encouragement, letters of rebuke, letters of inspiration to my churches, John. Write these letters down and send them out. Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 is depicted as the tender shepherd. 
keeping watch over his dear churches, keeping watch over those that were so close to him. He says, John, before we get into the visions, I need you to send out some urgent letters to my special churches. Give them encouragement. Give them inspiration. And some of them give rebuke and counsel. In Revelation chapter 4, we are transported into what is my personal favorite vision in all of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5, John sees a throne. And he looks at that throne and, and he's amazed at the throne and one sat on the throne and as the story develops, you know that that's God on the throne. John looks around and, and, and there's a scroll. In, in our modern time, we bind books like this. This is what's called the codex form. But in those times, uh, there were scrolls and John sees this scroll and it's sealed with seven seals and, and John has a sense that whatever's in that scroll is important. He doesn't know what it is, but it's important. And, and then the, the cry is, who can open the scroll? It's been sealed. They would seal in ancient times scrolls with wax or with pitch so that they couldn't be opened when a message was sent from one dignitary to another by a messenger. And, and they would know if it had been opened. And John sees this marvelous scroll with seven seals. And, and he's looking and, and no one was found in all of heaven to open it. John begins to cry. He begins to weep because he has a sense that whatever's in that scroll, that the destiny of humanity hinges on what's in that scroll and he begins to weep. And then an angel turns to John and says, Don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And then John looks in Revelation chapter 5 and he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. So in Revelation 4 and 5... You have the Lamb slain and the Lion of the tribe of Judah and Jesus comes in, the risen Christ, and He takes that scroll from the hand of Him who was sitting on the throne, that's God the Father, and He sits down on the throne. Powerful imagery. The coronation service of Christ taking place there. Christ taking His rightful place there on the throne. Revelation 6 and 7 is the opening of those seals. Every time Jesus peels back a seal, there's a vision. Every time Jesus takes off one of the seals, there is a special vision that correlates to that seal. That's Revelation 6 and 7. You can see the, the flow of it. It makes perfectly good chronological sense. It's not to say that the book of Revelation is entirely chronological. In fact, it's not entirely chronological. That's one of the reasons that people have trouble with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not written chronologically. It's written thematically. It's based on themes more than chronology, and we'll spend time on that. Revelation 6 and 7, Jesus, the glorified Christ, begins to peel back those seals and vision after vision after vision comes. And then we get to Revelation 8 and 9. And the trumpets begin to blow, the trumpets of judgment. The great shofar is sounded. What did you think of that? I can play the trumpet, but I didn't want to scare you. And... Uh, the, the, the trumpet sounds and these uh, uh, horrific judgments begin to fall. So what are those judgments and what are those trumpets? It's Christ that is issuing these things. Christ is at the center of it. Are there judgments? Sure there are, but it's Christ who's issuing them. It's Christ who's at the center. And the judgments flow out. In Revelation chapter 10, we find this angel who looks exactly like Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Many Bible expositors believe it is Jesus, a messenger, and he returns and he puts one foot on the sea and he puts one foot on the land and he lifts his hand to heaven and he swears that there will be time or delay no longer. He has a little scroll in his hand, a remarkable, remarkable prophecy. 
Revelation chapter 11, we find these two witnesses. Two witnesses that, that, that could call down fire from heaven and a witness that, that could cause plagues to fall and then the witnesses are slain. Who are they witnesses of? Jesus Christ. These things do not exist in a vacuum. Even the witnesses were testifying of Christ and they're slain. And then Revelation chapter 12 and 13 is the undisputed climax of the book of Revelation. Here we find Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, in direct conflict and combat with the enemy. In Revelation chapter 12, he's in conflict with the dragon. Verse 9 says that dragon that deceives the whole world is the devil and Satan. Here we find Jesus locked in almost hand-to-hand combat with his arch enemies. Well, who is this dragon? Who is this devil? Where did he come from? You've got to keep coming to the meetings. That's exactly what we're going to talk about. Revelation 13, this beast that we've already talked about, the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion, and these ten horns, and Jesus in direct conflict, the people of God in direct conflict with these satanic anti-Christian powers. Revelation chapter 14, we see these three angels streaking through the midnight heavens, Three very special, important messages. The first message is, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And these angels have special messages that point us to guess who, everyone? Just guess. Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Revelation chapter 14 ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Powerful, unimaginable, unfathomable glory that will be. Revelation 15 all the way through 19. Jesus in chapter 19 is depicted as riding on a great white stallion. The Bible says He has on His vesture a name, King of Kings. And say it with me, Lord of Lords. He's the Word of God. He's clothed in a garment dipped in blood and He returns victorious over His enemies. That imagery comes directly from an uh, an ancient practice. When one army had been defeated, the general of the victorious army would get on a white stallion and he would ride victoriously across the battlefield on that white stallion. That's exactly what we find in Revelation 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 as Christ gets the victory over His self-styled opposers. Revelation chapter 20, Christ takes that nail-scarred hand and lays it directly on the hand of Satan and binds him and throws him into a pit. Here we find Christ in, in direct conflict with His arch enemy. And that is awesome. I cannot wait to get to Revelation chapter 20. And then, Revelation chapter 21, the best of all, we see the new Jerusalem. The Bible says there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more disease, no more terrorism. Someone say amen. What's the focus of the New Jerusalem? It's not a city. It's not gold streets. It's not gold walls. It's who's in that city. And that is Jesus. All the way through the book of Revelation, the whole focus is Jesus. From Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, we can understand this book. We can understand Bible prophecy. But we're going to need two keys. Number one, we're going to need the key that says the Old Testament is the foundation of the book of Revelation. And number two, we're going to need the key that says the focus of this book is not dragons. The focus of this book is not the Antichrist. The focus of this book is not all of this mystical imagery. The focus of this book is who? Say it with me now. Jesus Christ. You say amen? All right. Is your appetite whetted? All right. Well, we're done for tonight. (laughs) <laughs> We're going to close with a word of prayer. We're going to turn you loose tomorrow night. I want to let you know something. I want to make you a promise. We want to be very sensitive to your time. Are you busy? Anybody here busy? 
Hey, I'm busy. Here's what's going to happen. I want to let you know. I'm not whistling Dixie up here. These meetings are going to start at 7 o'clock sharp. 7 sharp. So don't think, well, I'll show up at 7.10. You show up at 7.10, you miss the first 10 minutes of the meetings. You show up at 7 o'clock sharp, this meeting is going to last about 55 minutes, and you can walk out of here most nights by 8 o'clock. Sound like a good idea? So you can still get home and eat your meal and see the game, whatever you want. But beloved, we are going to be here responsibly, carefully studying God's holy word. I want to give you a personal invitation to be with us as many nights as you can, and I'll let you know. I don't gain anything from you being here except the fellowship of good Christian brothers and sisters. But you will gain a lot from being here. Do whatever you can. Change your schedule. Manipulate your schedule. Adjust your schedule. If you cannot make it on certain nights, no problem. We'll have audio CDs available every single night for a nominal fee. Again, that money doesn't go to me. That money goes to defray the expenses, the expenses of this event. You are all invited as my personal guests to come, to bring family members, to bring friends, and to go on a journey with us as we discover prophecy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have just spent a few moments together tonight trying to unlock a few of the mysteries of Revelation. And Father, we've seen tonight that it is not some mysterious book that is incomprehensibly difficult to understand. No, no, no. In fact, tonight, just with two keys in our hands, we've already begun to unlock some of the marvelous mysteries of this book. Father, I want to pray for every person here, unique people, special people, people that you love. Father, there are people here tonight with challenges, people here with frustrations, people here with needs. Father, minister to every person that is here and their families. And Father, bring them back, not to my glory, but to your glory. In the name of Jesus, let everyone say, Amen. This media was provided by Hope Media Ministry. For this and other great witnessing material, please visit our website at www.hopevideo.com or you can call us at 616-676-3705. You can also write to Hope Media Ministry, P.O. Box 752, Ada, Michigan, 49301. Our email address is hope at hopevideo.com. You can also listen to much of our media at our online media center for free at www.hopevideo.com. That's hopevideo.com.